Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Fiduciary Investors Series podcast. I'm Amanda White, Director of Institutional Content at Connexus Financial and Editor of Top1000Funds.com. My guest today is Simon Pilcher, Chief Executive of USS Investment Management, which manages assets for USS, the largest private pension scheme in the UK. Simon, welcome. Thanks a lot. Nice to be with you. Great to have you here. So how things for you in the UK? You've just recently had a second wave of coronavirus after what we were viewing down here as a bit of a summer of freedom. How, how are you doing and, and what does the lockdown mean for you? The news from a coronavirus perspective here and I guess in many other places in the world isn't great news. Um, different regions exhibiting uh, different infection rates and different reactions from, from governments uh, in the different parts of the UK. Uh, where I am, we're no longer allowed to meet up indoors with people from another household for a social event. Um, that's true across London. But um, where our Liverpool offices, for instance, you're not even allowed to meet people outside. So uh, it, it's not a great outlook. Um, and realistically, uh, I suspect we're going to be in a fairly a uh, prolonged period of curtailed action in terms of uh, meeting up with folk. And then when that comes um, in the dark and winter months, uh, that's not a great outlook, to be honest. It's, it's um, slightly depressing. So today I want to talk about the portfolio and how's it, how it has fared over the past six months and some of the significant changes you've made or things that you've seen and observed. About 40% of the USS portfolios in listed equities. And last year, you began a review of certain sectors, looking at long-term returns and how those sectors might be impacted. This has resulted in divestment from tobacco, thermal coal mining, and cluster munitions and landmines. But importantly, you base these decisions around financial valuations. Can you talk to us about this review the process that you took and the conclusions that you've come to, which have resulted in divestment? Yeah. Um, look, in the UK, um, if we're going to make an exclusion decision, um, for us to be on safe legal grounds, there needs to be a financial factor behind that decision. We can make exclusions on other grounds. It's just not as straightforward in terms of uh, ensuring that that's well, legal and appropriate. And so that's exactly what we did. We looked at these sectors from a long-term financial perspective. And I emphasize the words long-term because uh, we are a very long-term investor. We've got liabilities that stretch out till the end of this century. And uh, we're convinced we should be making long-term investment judgments. And um, what, we th- what we discovered as we thought about things was that um, if you think about uh, significant um, dislocations in how companies perform over the very short time horizon, it, it's relatively unlikely that we'll see a major change in consumer behaviour or government behaviour towards uh, a particular company or sector. But as you extend the time horizon, so it becomes ever more likely, or we would say certain, that certain industries Uh, who are essentially engaged in um, dumping, for want of a better word, social dumping or environmental dumping or health dumping, if uh, if you want to think about tobacco. So we think it becomes ever more certain that there will be some combination of a a radical societal shift away from that industry or that company or uh, a radical government 
turning against that industry or that company. And uh, as we thought about that, so we became concerned that uh, that these were industries that, over a medium to longer term view, uh, were likely to suffer uh, dramatic shifts in consumer or governmental uh, reaction to, to their activities. And thus, we, without frankly knowing when that would happen, we thought it was the right thing for the scheme and for its financial health to exit from those sectors. And so is the unwinding of that, the sort of practicality around that, a difficult process? Can you, what's the sort of timeline and how does it work? Yeah, so it's worth saying that we don't have huge holdings in a good number of those sectors. In fact, we didn't have any holdings in a number of those sectors um, because um, we had frankly come to that conclusion at a company level, but what we hadn't done was make a big song and dance about it. We did hold some tobacco, concluded that um, we would give ourselves two years to divest um, where we held tobacco shares. I think we need to do that in an orderly fashion. We need to make sure that we've got time uh, not to have the market see us coming, if I can put it like that, and also to make sure that any third-party manager that we're using has got time to exit. So uh, we've given ourselves two years. Um, In practice, we don't, for instance, have any holdings in thermal coal or cluster munitions, white phosphorus, um, landmines. That makes it a bit more simple. Um, we'll come back to some of your other uh, sustainability initiatives and, and recognitions that you've you've had recently, but I want to talk about private assets, which is also a big part of your portfolio, 22% or about £18 billion, and it's run internally by a dedicated team. This has been growing over the years. Can you tell us a bit about the makeup of your investments in that and where you see the opportunities. And I, and I want to talk also about one of the issues I've been discussing with asset owners that run their own internal direct private asset portfolios is this issue of sourcing given um, the current conditions and lockdown and wondering if your team's encountering difficulties with that in terms of sourcing new deals, being able to be on the ground in certain places and, and actually really do the due diligence. Gosh, there's a, there's a lot in that, Amanda. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Let's start with looking at what the private assets portfolio looks like. How do you, yeah. So, look, we, um, we've been investing in private markets for, oh, I don't know, a dozen years and more. We very much started that by focusing on um, funds and making use of the skills and expertise of uh, specialists, uh, specialist private equity firms. Uh, and that's how we began that enterprise. Uh, We then looked to uh, reduce the average cost of our investments. And so, for instance, for for many years, we've been engaging in co-investment opportunities that those PE firms, et cetera, bring to us. And uh, again, for many years, we've invested in real estate. So real estate is a chunk of what we do in that space, albeit it's not the dominant part of what we do within private assets. What we've done in uh, more recent years is we've taken uh, large individual positions in certain investments uh, ourselves, directly sourcing, directly underwriting, directly managing, sitting on the boards, etc. of some of those investments. And we've taken an ever greater focus 
on uh, private debt and long income uh, as well as shorter dated income plays. Um, what we've been doing, I would say, especially in the last uh, 12 months or so, is trying to find uh, assets that have got a combination of cash flow characteristics that link back to our liabilities, uh, which are long dated, sterling, uh, UK uh, inflation linked in nature. So how can we source in the private markets assets that have got some of those characteristics, but clearly add a return premium that significantly exceeds what we could do, uh, well, certainly in the UK government bond market, but also more generally in the public markets. So how are we doing from a sourcing perspective? We've seen a lot of opportunities this year. We 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 sort of put together a three-year plan. Uh, we we guesstimate what we think we can do in different segments within that. We have executed, or we will have executed by the end of this year, uh, well ahead of the, the sort of the three-year run rate that we put together. You know, we'll be probably around. 40% done on a three-year plan uh, by the end of this year, maybe even a tiny bit more. And that is a reflection of the significant wealth of opportunities that are coming our way. And clearly, some of those were things that we were looking at pre-COVID, but some of those are things that are coming about. Um, and possibly there are fewer people competing for them in certain areas post-COVID. So, uh, an example, for instance, we've recently signed on a very long-dated uh, well, sale and leaseback transaction, a uh, £400 million investment linked with cash flows that are linked to CPI in the UK, giving us a material uplift over the returns that we could have got by investing either in the debt of the company uh, in the public mar bond markets or other other alternative assets. Uh, so that's just an, one example of of, a, of an investment we've made in the last, um, well, in this case, in the last month. And one of the other innovations in the private investments sector is you've now offering private market investments in your DC fund. What's the plan for that DC component? How's it? How's that evolving? Yeah, that, that's something we're really excited about. Actually, we we began that program. Um, Back in Q1 of this year, uh, we finally worked out how to do it and how to make it work for our DC section. It's worth saying that our DC section, in terms of size, is a lot smaller than our defined benefit section. So, to give you an order of magnitude, DC is a bit over a billion. Our DB is about 75 billion. And so, the skills and capabilities that we've built up to serve our defined benefit section, we're now able to make available to our defined contribution section. And uh, what the first phase of that really was, was bringing the uh, percentage of our DC funds that were invested in private assets up from zero, which is clearly where they were at the beginning of the year, up to the sort of 10 to 15%, depending on the, on the mandate uh, state that we're happy with. Uh, which is roughly where they are now. So we did, did that gradually over a period of months. Um, and what will happen now is as uh, additional cash flow comes in from our members month by month, so uh, we will effectively maintain the current shape of the portfolio by allocating 
you know, 85 to 90% into public markets and 10 to 15% into private assets uh, as those cash flows come through from, from members. So let's just take a step back from the private assets and have a look at the sort of total portfolio. And I'm interested in, you know, going back to March, how the portfolio was impacted and sort of where you incurred losses and, and where the wins were and perhaps you know, what you're looking at now that you may really not have considered if it wasn't for the past six months of volatility and and sort of economic challenges and how are you putting it all together? Has your portfolio construction changed in any way because you've, you know, as many investors have been kind of forced to look at your portfolio in a, in a sort of more detailed manner? Yeah, I won't pretend that... Uh... February, March was uh, fun or relaxing. Um, it was a very challenging time for us, um, as I'm sure it was for everybody else, with uh, obviously needing to relocate out of the office very smartly, people working from home, uh, and uh, dramatic dislocations in market. Um, we we operate um, a portfolio that's modestly levered. So uh, what we want to get from that is both a combination of um, some liability matching characteristics. Our liabilities, as I said, have got long-dated UK inflation-linked characteristics to them, but we also want to have exposure to growth assets. So we we operate using modest leverage. We needed to make sure that our positions in the markets at that time of dislocation uh, could be maintained rather than being forced into any sort of fire sale in order to fund margin calls. Uh, that was very successfully done. We we worked, uh, I would say, exceptionally well to ensure that uh, we could not only maintain those positions, but then take advantage of some of the opportunities that came about in the midst of that dislocation. So um, what did we do at that time? Well, we did a variety of things. We, uh, we were able to acquire some uh, pretty cheap inflation hedging at, at a time when the government bond markets were behaving well, under clear stress, um, and and that was a, a good opportunity for us to acquire some hedging assets at, at cheaper prices. We took advantage of the significant widening in credit spreads to acquire uh, some fixed income assets, uh, some credit assets that again will uh, w- will give us the combination of uh, hedging and and return. We clearly had to look carefully at the investments that we had, and in particular within the private markets, uh, we have an obligation really to to help the companies that we've backed. Um, there was a very intensive period of uh, attending of board meetings, of advising management, of helping them uh, with some practical advice around liquidity and things like that. Uh, in a couple of cases, we actually um, provided liquidity, uh, either shorter term or longer dated liquidity to to our investments. So we were very active in that regard. As things have moved on, so we have, um, well, we've continued to do some of those things. So we've continued to increase our exposure to credit. Uh, We have uh, gradually increased some of our inflation and and interest rate hedging. Uh, I should say that, that there was a huge transatlantic dislocation that happened as well, we saw massive outperformance of the US Treasury market relative to the UK. 
Uh, we had um, substantial holdings of U.S. Treasuries and U.S. TIPS, uh, and we've been able to make some uh, good trades uh, out of the U.S. and into the U.K. for the benefit of the scheme at uh, various times during the year. Um, and then latterly, for instance, we've been looking at our currency exposure and thinking about are there better ways of organizing that so that in an environment in which, uh, for instance, equity markets tumble, uh, if that were to happen again, which currencies might give us better hedging characteristics uh, at a total portfolio level? And so we've been shifting our portfolio around in that regard. Um, earlier on in the year, we sold, uh, we sold some dollars. We've been increasing uh, euro and yen. Uh, we think that that combination is probably going to suit uh, serve the scheme better in, uh, in future volatility, which, uh, well, who knows if and when that happens. So you continue to make some you know, investments and, and just this month made a fairly significant investment, £400 million for a 49% stake in BP's freehold property estate. Um, you mentioned real estate earlier and it's one asset class that has been hit by the pandemic-induced economic crisis and coronavirus lockdowns in particular, obviously the office sector. Can you Tell us about your outlook generally for real estate and, and how you might be realigning your portfolio in terms of sectors. Well, real estate is one of the areas that's that's got some challenges, isn't it? Um, but I think that in the current environment, there isn't really such a thing as a real estate market. It's exhibited pretty uh, divergent performance over the last several years, if you think about pre-COVID area, we were already seeing a significant pressure on retailing assets. And by contrast, the big box format, um, warehouses, smart warehouses, et cetera, were doing very well. And uh, clearly in this environment, well, a lot of that has continued. We're, um, we're people who invest uh, sort of holistically rather than simply saying, well, here's a real estate allocation, you decide how that's run. We look at what we're doing at a more broad level and ask, well, if I mention that BP asset, we didn't say, oh, let's relocate an asset. Let's re, re, um, let's move assets within real estate into those, into those investments. We said, this is an attractive investment at a scheme level. Let's buy it. Oh, that would appear to be in the real estate bucket, but if you think about what we've bought, it's uh, largely a secured set of cash flows from an investment-grade company uh, with inflation-linked characteristics. And, um, and there's a real estate wrinkle on the end in terms of what will those assets be worth in 20 years' time. The vast majority of the value is in the contractual cash flows, and that's really how we've approached that investment. And we thought... This is an investment that we think uh, represents outstanding value uh, at a total scheme level. It gives us uh, really attractive characteristics uh, that help us from a liability perspective. And actually, we think uh, it, it can probably do good in terms of helping the corporate, in this case, uh, redirect their investment towards uh, the overall greening of their businesses, as they've been clear uh, they're, they're keen to do. So... I'm not sure if that gives you a feel for how we approach things, Amanda. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm interested in sort of diving into this BP investment a, a little bit more because I think it does 
um, speak to almost the complications of uh, sustainable investment in some ways. So I'm, I'm interested in, in learning how this aligns with your sustainability focus because, you know, on one hand you're investing in, uh, you know, property that, that sells fuel and on the other hand you've got a very robust sustainability program including investing in renewables and, and you've been recognised in the PRI's 2020 leaders list. Can you talk us through how all of that, kind of fits together i know you've already mentioned that by investing in this you think it will improve the bp corporates ability to sort of green um but kind of on the surface it looks like you're investing in um you know fuel on one hand and renewables on the other and um acknowledging it's complicated but love to hear your views on it yeah and i think i think that's the key takeaway it is complicated look those assets that we've that we've got a 49 percent stake in uh, today generate uh, a very high proportion of their EBITDA actually from uh, general retailing, from consumer convenience stores, etc., not just from fuels. Um, over time, we would expect uh, substantial repurposing of a number of those um, sites to facilitate uh, rapid electric vehicle charging, etc. And, and we think that that is core really to, to the evolution of, uh, of the auto fleet uh, and to the way in which those sites uh, are likely to be used. And, and frankly, if that doesn't happen, they'll be repurposed for, for other uh, consumer purposes. Um, but BP themselves have been clear in their own publicity that, that they plan to invest a great deal of money in, uh, in renewables themselves and that essentially what they're trying to achieve is to free up uh, the resources to enable them to do that. Uh, and we clearly support uh, that evolution uh, for them as a business and want to see them and, uh, and other major oil companies. And we, we've, been, we've been very public in, for instance, our extensive engagement with Shell about getting them to commit to a rapid decarbonisation of their entire business. And that's not just what they do in terms of the way in which they operate, but it's also the goods that they produce, which in their case, obviously, has a very high carbon content today. So we're really keen to work with the major uh, fossil fuel consumers and producers to help them evolve and change their businesses. Uh, and we think that this is a constructive thing, both in terms of what we've acquired and in terms of what this will enable uh, BP to do. Um, whilst, yeah, um, it, it's not obviously the most tree huggy of things but actually we think in the longer term this uh, this this will be for the good of uh, of bp so i mentioned your leadership position in uh, sustainable investing and, and the focus on the long term which you've already mentioned and uh in march this year i can't believe it was march this year actually it seems like so so much time has passed um you signed a joint letter with Japan's GPIF and Calsters from the US called Partnership for Sustainable Capital Markets, which set out expectations of managers and other market players in terms of long-term sustainable investing. And I just want to read out part of the letter, which said um, it explicitly says that managers which integrate ESG factors throughout their entire investment process vote according to the mandate to which they have pledged and are transparent with us about their level of corporate engagement, demonstrate to us that they are committed to long-term value creation in line with our interests and they will be favoured. 
So I'm interested in in hearing, you know, the progress report on this, if you like, uh, since March and and what the response of managers has been to that and has anything changed? Has there been any shift that you've you've seen which, um, you know, we may be able to attribute to that? Well, I'm not going to cite individual um, conversations or meetings, but I think think the world of today at, at a wider societal level is radically different from the world of just two or three years ago in terms of people's expectations. If I think of um, of the conversations that I have with with my directors, with the directors of USS, if I think of the conversations that are happening uh, really at um, at the top level of uh, of corporations, I think people now genuinely understand the extreme focus that consumers and governments have on the social purpose of companies. And I think coronavirus has, in a sense, highlighted that. At a very early stage, we thought about what would be the worst thing for the companies that we invest in to do in this environment. And we thought pretty much the worst thing that they could do would be to seek seek to cynically exploit the opportunities that were put before them as a result of this uh, human tragedy that has been unfolding over the last um, nine or so months. And that that was emphatically not a business that we wanted to be associated with. Uh, and, uh, you know, our conviction is that in, in when the annals of, of this COVID time are being written, there will be business cases, uh, business school cases written about those corporates that have engaged responsibly and over with a long-term mindset, and they will have succeeded. And there'll be those businesses that are viewed to have been cynical and, uh, and they will have been punished. They may have made money in the short term, but uh, in the medium or longer term, some combination of consumers and governments will exact their revenge uh, on that, well, uh, uh, antisocial behaviour. And I really think this is deeply ingrained. I think this is a radical shift that's ex- that's emphatically been enhanced by COVID, but was there in any case. And clearly, we're seeing that from uh, from the whole carbon issue as well. I think people realise that this is a long-term, structural, serious issue. And so, uh, I think with hindsight, the timing of that letter was was the right timing, um, because structurally, we're in a different world. Yeah, I agree with you. And, and you know, all, as you say, you know, some of those shifts were already underway, but it, it's pretty clear to me that that has come to the light through the coronavirus uh, pandemic, both from a health and economic perspective and, and the vulnerabilities that have been revealed because of that. And it seems that, uh, you know, companies with purpose uh, are now being rewarded and, and will be rewarded in the future. And, and, Simon, you've only just been in the job a year as well. So you've been launched into this huge job um, and, and then had to, to sort of navigate through a crisis as well. How would you sum up your year in the, in the job there? Oh, it's been, um, it's, it's, it's been a huge privilege and a huge challenge. I have learnt an enormous amount. Uh, my previous executive experience was within the investment management sector. I had many pension funds as clients, uh, but I'd never been an asset owner. Um, And clearly, 
when you're in Macedonia, you have to think about things differently. You, you need also to ensure that you're thinking about structurally how the fund should be run. And we're in the midst of, of evaluation, which is a process essentially of thinking about uh, what the benefits uh, promised to members are likely to cost and what's the appropriate way in which risk, investment risk and funding risk should be run going forward. So that, that's been a, a very rapid and steep learning curve for me, but I'm working with an outstanding team. I consider myself hugely privileged to have inherited such a high quality team of people. Um, and they have worked above and beyond and with extreme diligence and skill. And I would say, especially in the context of coronavirus, it's been a delight to see the common purpose as people pull together uh, for, for, the, for the clear single purpose which we have, which, which, which is for the benefit of our members. And, and that has been a great joy to be in an organization uh, with, uh, with such clear purpose and uh, a common understanding of what we're all about. So, yeah, um, challenging, um, stretching, humbling, fun as well, actually. We've had moments of laughter. It doesn't sound like I've laughed a lot, but, but we've, had, we've, had, we've, had, we've had fun along the way too. That's good. It, it sounds like you're, you've earned your holiday anyway. Um, and, and, and so from an internal organisational point of view, you've had some other sort of very significant new appointments, including Kate Barker as chair of the board and a new chief, chief risk officer in Lindsay Matthews. Can you talk to us a little bit about the organisational governance um, and if there's any kind of changes or improvements or any kind of movements at all really that are under consideration in terms of you know either the governance structure or the internal organizational um, structure yeah look i don't want to go into sort of levels of detail that'll uh, send people to sleep but um, in a nutshell uss investment management which i'm the chief executive of is a is a, is a wholly owned subsidiary of the pension fund. Um, the pension fund is our only client. The pension fund owns us. Uh, they are our sole focus, but we are a separate regulated entity uh, and we are governed, uh, regulated by the UK's Financial Conduct Authority. Kate is chair of trustees, um, chair, chair of the board of USS, which is the parent company. Uh, as you've mentioned, she's come on this year uh, taking over, um, as was planned, uh, previous chair ha had served his term. And uh, yeah, it's, it's great to work with Kate. I've really enjoyed getting to know her. Um, and she, I think, will uh, will be what well, is just the right person we need to steer us through this next phase. Lindsay, Lindsay joined us a month ago. He's our new uh, chief risk officer. Uh, fantastic to have someone with his level of experience and, and calibre. As we look forward, I will have a new uh, chair of, of the board of, uh, of USIM, the investment management subsidiary, uh, later on uh, next year. Um, our current chair will, will stand down uh, as planned uh, in the summer of next year. So we'll be recruiting, uh, we are recruiting a new uh, chair of the board. But we're not expecting um, sort of radical change in the way in which we do things. It's just a natural progression as, as our various non-executives uh, roll on and, and roll off in time. So a refreshment 
uh, of uh, of their number. So that that's itself great to have new people come in with with fresh insight and uh, a new uh, critical friend, as I as I think of the role of of chair of of USIM, uh, both to help me and to challenge me. So I just want to briefly speak about risk, and you know, Lindsay brings a wealth of experience to the role. In in this environment, would it be fair to say that? risk management is, is becoming even more important to the fund? Is, is it something that, that now you're, you're paying more even more attention to? Oh, I'm, I'm not sure about more important. I'm sure that risk management has always been important to, uh, to USS. You know, the, the, the nature of the different risks uh, keeps evolving. We're having to respond to different uh, pressures and threats. Um, Lindsay will bring additional perspectives from his prior executive experience, and I'm really looking forward to working with him. We've, we've already had some great conversations, and uh, you know, it's really about ensuring there's an appropriate collaboration and cooperation between the first line and the second line. I, I think we need to up our game in all sorts of different areas, um, and uh, you know, first line risk is something that, particularly investment risk, I think will be looking at how we do that going forward and Lindsay and I will be looking to uh, to, to redesign uh, some things there I'm sure. Well Simon it's been wonderful to speak with you we've covered lots of ground I really appreciate you coming on that journey and, and thank you very much for your time please stay safe have a fabulous holiday and I look forward to speaking with you at some time in the future thank you very much. Thanks a lot Amanda great to chat and uh, yeah go away with yourself.